Welcome to episode 1415 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley, coming to you from a hotel room in Boston, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh. I didn't say where I'm from, I didn't say where you're from. Uh. <laughs> Same places as always. Fangraphs are here, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> you sound slightly under the weather, I would say. I have a summer head cold. Being sick in the summer is the worst. It's just the worst, but it could be worse. This uh, this cold could have hit last week during the deadline, uh, mm. and it didn't. So it's a lot like college where I would get sick immediately after finals, but my body would have the good sense to keep it together until those were done. So yeah. it's a lot like that. Well, it did hit just in time for Saber Seminar yeah. and for us to do a, a live episode of this podcast, <laughs> which you will all hear early next week if you're not in attendance at Saber Seminar. But flying across the country is famously beneficial for colds and illness. <laughs> so Yeah. It wasn't so bad. It was it was a more pleasant flying experience than my uh trip to Cleveland, let's put it that way. Uh <laughs> right. co- cold and all. So um you know, uh, it, it'll be fine. I sound more and more like myself with each passing day. So by Saturday, I might be totally back to normal. Yeah. Well, you will not have to talk as much as you do in some episodes on this episode because we will be talking to our pal Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees. And the Yankees have won nine consecutive games. They have the best winning percentage in baseball. And they are doing it in just the weirdest way, just the strangest season. And we're going to ask Lindsay all about that. But a few things before we bring her on. First, someone posted a fun fact that was on the Tigers broadcast, I believe, and it was tweeted by Bless You Boys, the SB Nation Tigers blog, and I think I saw it in our Facebook group. This is an alleged fun fact about Travis Demerit, the Tigers rookie, and here we are. Count the qualifiers. First player with six-plus walks and two-plus triples in first eight career games since Spike Owen with 1983 Mariners. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Anytime you can be in the company of Spike Owen and the 1983 Mariners, that speaks well of you. Six-plus walks and two-plus triples in first eight career games. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's it's a lot of qualifiers, and it's not the most impressive name to be associated with. No offense to Spike Owen, but this is in stark contrast to all the Bo Bichette fun facts that oh, are yeah. going around, which are pretty good. So Bo Bichette, of course, has been on fire since he was called up by the Blue Jays, and he is the first rookie since Ted Williams in 1939 to record an extra base hit in nine straight games. So that's good because that's 80 years. It's Ted Williams. Extra base hits are good. Not yeah. too many qualifiers. And then after he qualified for that one, he then doubled after the home run. And so there are additional fun facts about Bobichet. He is the only player in the modern era with 12-plus extra base hits through his first 11 career games. First MLB player in the history of anything to hit a double in nine straight games. So those are 
good fun facts, I yeah. guess. Doubles are kind of weird, but but it's in a very impressive start. So Travis Demerit, I mean, I guess the Tigers, they, they've got to take what they've got, and they don't have Bo Bichette. They've got Travis Demerit, and he's done what he's done, and six walks and two triples in eight games. That's nice, too. Sure. Demerit is a underrated high stakes baseball name. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess as an outfielder, the odds of him crewing a bunch of errors is probably lower just because of fielding chances, but could be. He better he better pick up that defense or boy, is he going to be in for some bad headlines from someone somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Meg Rally tweets, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Spike Owen, by the way, had a 44 OPS plus in his rookie season with oh the Mariners. So <laughs> things must have really tailed off after those first eight career games for him. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I will I will admit, I, I am sure that I saw... You know, I probably saw. No, I didn't see any of his Mariners career. That was that was early. I was yeah. not alive for for most of it, and then yeah, uh, you know, barely born for the rest. So I don't really remember him playing for the Mariners, but I have a good reason because yeah. I wasn't around yet. It's probably for the best. <laughs> 1983 Mariners went 60 and 102. Yeah, so. it was a bad. It was a Real bad baseball team. Yeah, not real, making real a lot of timeless memories there. No. Nope. So another thing I wanted to mention is that Javi Baez batted left-handed in a game on Thursday. And this was a weird one. Cubs were playing the Reds. It was the ninth inning. The Cubs were up 12-5. to five, And the Reds put in a position player pitcher, Kyle Farmer. And so everyone was kind of taking it easy and Farmer was just lobbing balls up there and they weren't even registering on the radar gun because they were so slow. And Jason Hayward, who I think is a friend of Kyle Farmer's, he grounded out against him and he was just like laughing as he was running up the first baseline. And Baez batted left-handed, I think for the first time in his career in a game. This is something that he does in batting practice. He's left-handed in life, if not in baseball. And so he has a a pretty natural-looking stroke. And Joe Madden told him to do it. He was encouraged to do it. And he just sort of looked like he tried to hit a home run, but he was just waiting and waiting and trying to stay back and just couldn't stay back long enough because Farmer was throwing so slow. So Baez just sort of skied one to center field, and that was that. But what I thought was curious about this, and Tom Tango tweeted the StatCast defensive alignment for this Kyle Farmer versus left-handed Baez at bat, and the Reds were shifting on this play, like huh. standard like overshift like the the shortstop was on the right side of second and the second baseman was in short right field and this kind of was curious for a few reasons i mean a how do you even know what yeah. javi Pius is going to do yeah. with a, a position player pitcher on the mound for one thing and also a guy batting left-handed who's never batting <laughs> batted left-handed before it's not like you have spray charts that cover this situation you've not practiced this no. so <laughs> i don't know how you could know i mean i guess you could just infer you could suppose that a left-handed hitter is probably going to pull the ball and i guess you can do that but a that's that's one thing just like okay this is what we drilled for position player pitcher facing left-handed batter who usually hits right-handed here's our alignment for this at bat but also like why is the shift i wonder exempt from unwritten rules and from like situations where you're not supposed to try too hard because 
this is the ultimate not trying situation. You put in the position player pitcher. The hitter is not really trying his hardest. He's just having fun. But the defense shifting is is not something that ever really seems to – there was that one time, right, where I, I forget – what the situation was. I think Ben Zobris was involved, maybe. I don't know. But Sam wrote that article, I think, about how unwritten rules are really like players trying to game the system. They're trying to get other players to do things that are not advantageous to them. And someone was mad that someone had shifted, I think. And Sam was speculating that the idea was just that you like shame people into not doing the thing that is good for them to do. But you don't really see people get mad about the shift. And I don't know why that is. I don't know what sets it apart. I want to know how the Reds fielders, did anyone say like, hey, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. Did anyone say like, but so what's this about? Huh? What are we? What are we up to right now? Right. How confident are we that this matters? <laughs> I would imagine that uh, that is a moment as a coach where you're like, I'm really hoping none of my guys think too hard about this <laughs> because it's already tricky enough to get not every player, but you know, there are players who don't like shifting and it's not just pitchers, right? There are position players who don't like it and they grumble and they kind of like, you, you know, you can see them sometimes when you're sitting there, they like move. And then they wait for the bench coach to look, and then they kind of move back a little bit because they're like, grumble, grumble. Yeah. And if any one of them had thought for a moment, like, there's no way you have data on this. Why are we doing this? Why? Right. Yeah, it's strange. And I was actually misremembering. It wasn't Ben Zobrist. It was Brian Dozier. And I think he was mad about a bunt, actually not about a shift. The the twins were shifting at that time, as Sam noted in the article. So shifting just, it seems to be exempt. Like you can't steal in certain situations if you're up by a certain number of runs and you can't bunt and you can't do this and that. But shifting is fine. And maybe it's just that... Shifting is almost the norm now. There are teams that shift on most pitches. Shifting for some teams is more common than what we think of as the standard alignment. So maybe it's that. It's just like it's a deviation from your routine not to shift. But yeah, <sighs> it does. It does seem strange because the uh, you know the difference. The reason that that sometimes people get grumbly about like stealing when you're up by a lot is you're pressing an advantage in a situation that you don't need to and that feels unsporting in some way, right? But, you know, we wouldn't have the expectation even in a situation like that that the that a position player wouldn't field the ball in order to record it out. Maybe right. maybe here's an idea. We'll attribute a motive to this that there's no evidence for. Maybe it's just seen as an act of mercy. Actually, because the reason that you shift is to record an out. And when you are having a very bad day at work, you just want your bad day at work to end. And so shifting is fine because it helps you bring about the end of a contest that is already effectively over, but we still have to play nine innings because that's the rule. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the reason that it's not seen as a problem because you're just trying to bring about the inevitable conclusion of a thing that was decided a couple innings ago when, you know, your guy had a bad day on the mound and now you're down 12 to 5 and Javier Baez is batting left-handed and up is down. (laughs) <laughs> so maybe that's it. It's that you're 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 not trying to press an advantage. You're you're just True. speeding up the the path to your 
uh, inevitable demise. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. In that Dozier situation, which I keep returning to and getting more accurate every time, uh, it, it was... <laughs> I can just keep vamping if you want. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Orioles chance Cisco and... Baltimore was trailing by seven runs and the twins shifted against Cisco. And so he bunted against the shift and he got a hit and Brian Dozier was upset about this, which seems very unfair because the twins were shifting. So they were doing what they could to get Chan Cisco out. And he was just trying to do what he could to counter that. And yet he was the one violating the unwritten rules and, and not the other way around. So Maybe it's like, is it that defense, like is defense exempt exempt from unwritten rules? Like people get mad at people on the bases who are trying to run up the score and then people get mad at Chance Cisco, who was losing by seven runs, but still trying to get a hit. I guess you're not even, are you not allowed to to try to catch up? It's very confusing and inconsistent, but maybe it is, as you were saying, that, yeah, it's just trying to get the game over with. It's not trying to tack on extra runs. Right. You're you're like, so I've had a bad day and I would like to go home now. And the Cubs are like, yeah. Get, yeah. I get that. We've had bad days too. You know, we had a they had a bad day the other night. They had Kyle Schwarber catching. You know, that was a bad night. Yeah. So I think that it's perhaps just uh, it's seen as mercy, right? We're granting you you are conceding that you would like to go home, and I am conceding that I would also like to go home. And if you want to further that by uh, by you know getting my uh, this out more quickly with a better positioning, then that's fine. Although I still think it's very strange, as you noted in the beginning, that they would that they would shift in that situation i guess you could just say like a gen- like you said a generic left-handed hitter yeah is likely to do the following and so we will do it that way and you know you're you're just as fine basing it on that as anything else and just assume that he has sort of typical tendencies as a lefty but it does seem very odd yeah. why wouldn't you just play him straight up it's right. so funny yeah it's so funny i know and if you're putting in Kyle Farmer, you're you're not trying to get the game over with, right. <laughs> really. You're not trying as hard as you might. Right. I, I understand why you're putting in Kyle Farmer. You're not going to win that game, but still. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's that the, the Reds were trailing in that game. Maybe if they had been the team ahead, I wonder if the Cubs were still shifting in, in the bottom of the ninth. <laughs> Is that unwritten rules? Anyway, I don't, know. I don't know. The shift just seems like it needs its own unwritten rules. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's exempt. It's weird. It does, it does suggest an acceptance of it as a phenomenon that surprises me mm. because you would expect – I just expect uh, baseball players to be sort of fussy about everything because, <laughs> yeah. you know, they can be a kind of fussy sort, and that's fine. We, we all have our moments. And, you know, there's uh, there, there are varying opinions on the shift. There's some dudes who really hate it. So I'm surprised, uh, as you are, that it would be, you know, considered part of the game to the point that you're like, yeah, I don't need a role for that. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So last thing, I think, for me at least, I I wrote something about a concept that I'm calling the umpire perfect game. The article is up at The Ringer. I will link to it for anyone who wants to check it out. But 
I got to wondering, and I don't remember what prompted this, but I just figured there must be some games where umpires are perfect. We know that they're imperfect most of the time, and it's a very difficult job, and they're doing the best they can, and they're the best in the world at it, and they are quite successful, but they are not perfect. And yet, you play enough games, at some point, some umpire must have had a a perfect one where he called every pitch correctly. And so I got some data on this from Baseball Prospectus and effectively wild listener Lucas Apostolaris. And it turns out that no umpire has been perfect when it comes to calling every pitch in a game correctly. But some umpires have been perfect at calling pitches on one team in a game. And we have data, of course, going back to the beginning of the Pitch FX era in 2008. And in all that time, there have been 24 umpire perfect games. So that is fewer umpire perfect games than there have been no hitters, than there have been cycles, than there have been triple plays, all these rarities that we get push notifications about. (laughs) We never hear about the umpire perfect game, but it does happen for at least one side of the team, one team's pitchers in a game. And you never notice. And there's no celebration. The umpire doesn't get mobbed behind home plate when he pulls it off when he calls that last pitch correctly there's really no recognition at all except for a lack of people yelling at the umpire because that's how you know that he's doing a bad job or or is perceived to be doing a bad job and yet this happens every now and then and the most recent guy to do it was joe west of all people people. (laughs) on july 4th and This was a a day when Joe West was very much at the forefront, as he often is, because he was at the center of something of a a scrum. There was uh, Joe Madden was mad because Pirates pitchers were pitching inside, as they want to do. And he got ejected by Joe West, and then he ran on the field, and he was seemingly trying to get to Clint Hurdle, who he was blaming for the Pirates pitchers pitching inside, and he tried this spin move to get around Joe West, and (laughs) it was not very graceful, and and it didn't work. And so that was the, the big headline, and then another Pirates pitcher hit David Bodie in the head in the the next inning by accident with the bases loaded and West had to warn both benches. So while all of that was going on, no one noticed that Joe West called every pitch that Cubs pitchers threw correctly on that day. That was the most recent 24th umpire perfect game in recorded history. And I think it's a cool accomplishment because we certainly pay plenty of attention to umpires having imperfect games. And most of the time they do. But the rare occasion when they don't, I think it would be nice if we recognize that too. We were chatting about this a bit before we started recording, and I I understand that umpires are not uh, naturally sympathetic characters, and that's fine. I don't think that we need to be, we don't need to go too far in the opposite direction and, and sort of overstate their case, but they have a very, very hard job, and the fact that they do it as well as they do is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I appreciated this article very much. I wonder if, and the answer is probably no, because why would you do this? But you noted in this piece that Scott Barry came the closest to an, an actual perfect umpire yeah. game for both teams. In 2017, he, he called 97.2% of the mm-hmm. the pitches for the entire game correctly. And I wonder if you went back and looked at that game at all, because I bet he got booed just as much as a normal <laughs> umpire. 
Yeah, right? I, I didn't, I, I meant to, when I didn't know how many Umpire Perfect games there were, I, I was hoping there'd be like one or something right. and then I could watch the whole game and yeah. I could see like were hitters still complaining about calls because of course they probably would of be. Of course they were. <laughs> so I, I was overwhelmed by the 24 and oh, didn't yeah. end up going back and looking, but I'm sure if you did, you could absolutely find hitters on, on the side that was getting pitches called perfectly against them that would still be complaining about that. And I talked for much of the article to Dale Scott, the former umpire who was a guest on Effectively Wild with me and Jeff last Mm -hmm. year. And he gave me the skinny on why umpires are not perfect. And obviously it's because the pitches are really fast and they move a lot and it's hard to be that precise. But also some of the other factors like shadows and you know guys with weird release points and the start times are in the afternoon and there's a building behind them and Randy Johnson's pitching and he's (laughs) pitching right out of the building and or it's you know there are people moving around in the batter's eye which is also the umpire's eye and there are all these distractions or maybe the hitter's crowding the plate or the catchers getting in the way or it's some terrible or great framer who's influencing things so there are all these reasons why an umpire might be having a a good day or a, a bad day particularly and there's probably some randomness here too i think the the league average these days according to the method that we were using is 88.5 percent of calls are correct and that has improved slightly since the beginning of the pitch fx era and probably much more so since the beginning of the quest tech era because dale was telling me that he wasn't happy when quest tech came in but he realizes now that it was a a necessary corrective because umpires strike zones were just way out of whack and they were calling all kinds of pitches strikes that were not strikes and so they needed that objective feedback and i think things have improved the accuracy rate has risen the variation from umpire to umpire has decreased so still lots of imperfection but a little bit less than there used to be i just can't imagine you know reading it and hearing him talk about the experience of the the compounding difficulty of randy johnson being (laughs) twenty thousand feet tall already and then a late start and glare from a building and on and on and on. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine being able to, I mean, first of all, I can't imagine this is true of both of the umpire, the catcher, and the batter standing in against Randy Johnson at all. I would move out of the way. I think instinctively, I would be like, nah, I'm out of here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is not the place for me. I don't belong here. And so just standing there at all is kind of incredible. And then to have all of those other factors, I just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's so hard. (laughs) Yeah. Such a hard job. And then you have to you have to consider how many guys are throwing. You know, they have crazy velocity and then, you know, their other stuff moves a ton and it's just it's amazing. It's amazing that any of them get it right at all. That any of them do it well enough to leave a ballpark alive mm-hmm. is incredible. It's an incredible yeah. thing. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things he said, because I was thinking about all these external factors that we've been talking about that could influence how an umpire calls pitches, but 
I wasn't thinking of like umpires having mechanics and yeah. those mechanics getting screwed up in the way that a pitcher's or a hitter's would. And yet evidently that's an issue. Like Scott was saying, sometimes your timing is off and you're calling the pitch too quickly before you can like mentally replay it in your mind and and maybe be more accurate because of that. And maybe you're entering your crouch a little too late or something. And so you're not picking up the pitch as, as quickly as you should. And maybe your your head's not where it should be and your feet aren't where they should be. And so he had this mental checklist that he would go through if he felt like his mechanics were off where he'd just kind of check all these things and make sure they were in the optimal position, which I don't really think about, but they're yeah. they're performing. It's, it's, uh, it's not athletic in the way that what players do is, but still there's movement involved and there's uh, timing and synchronization and all that stuff can kind of get out of gear so that was kind of interesting and I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and thinking you know what would call a perfect game is robot umps is trackman that would call a perfect game just about every time and that's true there are certainly glitches and the atlantic league has run into the odd issue with systems shutting off or earpieces not working and the real-time accuracy is not as high as the the post-processing accuracy and so uh, there might be some issues there but yeah, on the whole, you would get more perfect games with the robot umps than you do with human umps. And, and Scott understood that, and we've had this conversation before, but as he pointed out, A, you'd get some pitches called that are technically rulebook strikes, but no one really wants them to be strikes or expects right. them to be strikes because they're not really hittable pitches like pitches on the low outside corner that are diving down outside of the zone and they end up below and outside the zone but they just nicked a corner of the strike zone technically so that would be a problem or at least an adjustment I guess you could program the system not to call those pitches but that's been an issue in the Atlantic League now and then and and the thing that's of more concern to me I mean you and I both appreciate framing obviously Mm -hmm. so, so we would miss that I don't know how many fans would miss that but I think also the tendency for the zone to shapeshift a little bit so that the zone on O2 is a little bit smaller than the typical zone and the zone on 3.0 is a little bit bigger than the typical zone. And that may seem unfair and it might seem like, well, of course it should be consistent from pitch to pitch, but I think there's maybe a hidden benefit there in that it kind of gives whoever needs a leg up in that at bat, that leg up, because if you're behind in the count as the pitcher or the hitter, you get a little more leeway than you would. And so I would think that if you implemented robot umps, like like the average outcome after a hitter gets to O2, for instance, which is already lousy, would be even worse because they wouldn't get that smaller strike zone to maybe recover from that. And, you know, maybe if the, the pitcher falls behind 3-0, then the outcomes for the batter would be even better. And then I think you would get slightly less competitive plate appearances because it would be like once you fell behind like that, it would be even harder to come back from it. So... I'm curious to see if that's the case in the Atlantic League, and I think that's something I would miss. But I can certainly understand why someone would read this and say, great, 24 perfect games, and it's only half of the the calls in the game are actually correct. Well, we could just strive for perfection all the time, and that's, uh, that's a reasonable position, too. 
It is a reasonable position, but you raise a very good point. Machines are not famous for appreciating a preferred aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have aesthetic sensibilities generally, and I think that we perhaps undervalue how much there being a person back there helps to smooth the way for outcomes that we find really dynamic and fun and interesting. And uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I I do appreciate the desire for precision. We like precision, but I think that you know, as we've talked about before, it is not either of our preferred sort of outcome. I think that having very good and precise evaluating technology is useful, you know, as as pointed as you point out as you've talked about having the ability to really dive into the zone that an umpire has called and use that as a teaching tool, I think is incredibly valuable. Uh, and, you know, we want there to be a good zone because it's maddening if there isn't. And it it sort of incentivizes weird behavior in hitters and pitchers if we get too out of whack. But I don't know. Yeah. I will, I'll be I'll be bummed when it's, you know, a guy with an earpiece. And as I've said before, people are still going to yell at that guy. And I think that's <laughs> yes. just mean. It's just mean. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I didn't mention there there are like 156 calls, pitch calls per game, the average game, which means that the typical team has 78 in in the average game and most of these perfect games have fewer because of course that varies and sure. the fewer pitch calls the umpire has to make the more likely that he'll get them all correct. Last thing, I noted in the article that you probably can't get real-time updates on this because of the accuracy issues and everything, but if you could, if you got a push notification like uh, umpire Joe West is through six innings and he hasn't messed up a, a pitch for this team or in the whole game or something would you watch <laughs> would you tune in to see if an umpire could finish off a, a perfect game yes I mean <laughs> I would of course I would I yeah I would but yeah. I can appreciate how uh, I would probably <laughs> we would probably both of us be in the distinct minority when it came to that I but think yes so too. but yeah that there'd be some stakes there'd be some tension there like oh yeah borderline pitch edge of the zone is he gonna get it right oh let's look at the replay let's see if that crossed the strike zone oh he blew the perfect game there was just one pitch left oh that I would watch I would definitely oh watch. yeah <laughs> and and as I as I said like I would want to see I would want to know how a, a crowd reacts to that. Mm. And I would imagine it would depend very much on which side of the of the ball the you know for which team the umpire is calling the perfect game and whether that is happening uh in that pitcher's home park or not. Yeah. Right? Like you might you don't necessarily want a perfect game if uh it's not your guy up there. You might want some wiggly calls. And so I would love to to watch a crowd watching that and and have them know that that's what's going on right they all got that push notification i want to see how they react to that i i think just for the um experience of people watching it would be incredible right all right let's take a quick break and we'll be back with Lindsay adler to talk about the yankees All 
right, so we are joined now by Lindsay Adler, who covers the recently unbeatable Yankees for The Athletic. Lindsay, welcome back. Hello, guys. So I was just reviewing your preseason prediction for the Yankees' win total on the Effectively Wild Season Preview podcast, and you called 105 wins, which is looking pretty good. Right now, I think the Fangraphs projections have them at uh, 104 wins, so you might just nail that, but I don't know how much credit to give you because I don't remember how much time we devoted to Mike Talkman and Gio Urshela on that podcast. I don't know if you called DJ LeMahieu team MVP but you're, I don't know about your process, but, but the results looking good. I've been anxious about that all season, thinking about where we're going to be September 30th or 31st or whatever, and how many teams or how many wins they're going to have and whether or not I'm going to look like a dumbass. So on, on a good track. Yeah. Well, before we get into the specifics, what has it been like to cover this team? Because this has just been the strangest season. Like people must be passing in and out of the clubhouse of the roster. There are new faces all the time. Then those new faces hit 400 for a few weeks every time they appear. It just is wild. The number of injuries, the amount of injury tracking you're having to do, you must just have like a mental checklist of, okay, this guy is due back in two weeks and this guy's due back in six weeks and this guy's done for the year. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. Aaron Boone's pregame pressers are always like 12 minutes now giving <laughs> giving injury updates on everyone. But it's been it's been really, truly crazy. I think it's been... I just, I just don't really get it. You know, I kind of thought in, in April and even May when everyone was injured around then, I think I started writing stories about like, what was the roster crunch going to look like when players were coming back? But then it just kept happening. It just, it just keeps happening over and over. And I don't really, it's been really crazy to watch, but it's been, it's been really cool because it's very clear that a lot of the, um, established guys are, they're, they're finding a lot of, a lot of joy out of out of watching some of these younger less experienced guys come up and definitely make a difference if you look at the the Yankees depth chart on yankees.com um you know there's there's always a couple of guys <laughs> who are listed as unavailable at the bottom of any of these and the the Yankees list officially goes long enough that there are names being cut off at the bottom <laughs> <laughs> because there're just too many guys not only on the 10 day IL but the, you know a number of guys who are have been on the 60 day IL and and may or may not end up finding their way back. I'm curious sort of how you said it's a mystery how they're doing this, but how how are they doing this? Because there was a stretch where the Yankees starting pitching in particular was was very bad going into the deadline. And there was a lot of speculation that they would try to acquire uh, another frontline starter to supplement the group that they had that has been underperforming in various and different ways. And then things have turned around. I imagine some of that is the benefit of getting to play the Orioles. But what has been mm-hmm. different over the last, say, you know, 15 days in the month of August and the last part of July that has helped these guys to sort of turn things. Yeah, I think I think the coaching staff has just really put in a lot of time and energy into approaching their pitching problem creatively. Masahiro Tanaka's splitter has been an issue for him all year, unfortunately, and they have changed his grip to the extent where, to me, it almost looks like more of a forkball. But I think that's a thing that a lot of Yankees fans were concerned about. Like they saw this pitching and they were like, what are they even doing about this? And I think what's lost is that they actually are doing things about it. I think, I don't think Larry Rothschild is, is getting much sleep right now, but 
you know, they changed Tanaka's splitter grip. They're changing, changing James Paxton's like pitch usage, incorporating his curveball more. And I think, yeah, I think getting away from teams like the, the Twins and Red Sox, um, has been really good for them. But I think what's been really instrumental is just that they seem to have kept this mentality that like, this was one bad week, one bad week, put it behind them and it, it, it hasn't snowballed, which is kind of a miracle given, given how things looked heading into the deadline for sure. Yeah, I was going to ask about the atmosphere, and you mentioned some of the veteran guys enjoying seeing the the younger guys succeed, but I would imagine it'd be very easy for a team that is going through this sort of thing and just dropping like flies to get down and think this isn't our year and we can't keep anyone healthy. I think what Jay Jaffe wrote in his piece for Fangraphs this week that I think there have been something like three guys uh, this whole season who've been on the active roster and have not been on the IL. So it's like Glaber Torres and I think Austin Romine and, mm-hmm. and maybe someone else. And I guess Urshela, since he came over, he he missed the first couple games of the season. But it's something where I would think it'd, it'd be easy for people to get down about and yet I could also imagine it maybe being a, a bonding experience because you you go through this difficult time together and somehow you keep winning and maybe that makes you stronger somehow yeah they've they've definitely embraced it and rallied through it and you know after that Red Sox sweep I talked to Aaron Judge and I asked him okay can you explain to me what is so exciting about seeing the production you guys are getting from these guys who are just coming up and coming in and out. And I would say that Judge was about as effusive as he's been all season in in talking about what enjoyment he and the rest of the team are getting from watching guys like Gio Urshela and Mike Talkman find this success. I think, you know, early in April when everyone started dropping like flies, I would say there was kind of this sense of like, oh my God, what is happening? You know, there was a little bit more concern, I would say, but now I think, and I think this is something that's going to serve them very well down the stretch, that they have seen the adversity and they have seen that they can get by with the depth that they have. And so, yeah, they very much turned it into their thing. They're very much enjoying being suddenly kind of scrappy underdog Yankees, which doesn't really make sense. I do want to ask about the the depth thing, especially after a deadline where they were pretty quiet in terms of their activity, because I think there were a number of people who saw some of the moves they made in the offseason and the accumulation of players who were perceived as depth pieces. I think we'll get to DJ LeMahieu and how Mm -hmm. very much not a depth piece he has proven to be. But there was sort of a a concern or a criticism that this was unnecessary depth and that they should have gone out and just gotten some, you know, more marquee guys. And then they didn't end up acquiring another starter at the deadline. Is it just that they're they're comfortable with the guys they have? They think that the changes that you've highlighted are going to be sufficient, or uh, is this? Did they try to get someone and they weren't weren't quite able to? I'm I'm curious because it just does seem like such a contrast to the approach that they had uh, in the winter, which was there cannot be enough players, and we'll sort of <laughs> sort it out when when these guys all get to get to camp. Yeah, I just don't think the options that were on the starting pitching market in particular were kind of seen as, you know, to to the point where they would be a true significant upgrade outside of Marcus Stroman and Trevor Bauer and the 
Blue Jays asking price, by my understanding, for pretty much every team for Stroman was very high, and so I think there's a lot of confusion over how the Blue Jays wound up with the return that they did. But yeah, I think I think the Yankees were very sure with what extent they were willing to go to to acquire starting pitching, and I think the market was pretty limited. And then once the Mets and Reds hijacked it, I think they kind of knew like, okay, we have to we have to find this success within within what we have. I think, you know, the offseason was really interesting. I definitely didn't really think much of the DJ LeMahieu signing. But um <laughs> <laughs> so add add me to the list of people who looks like fools. But yeah, I, I was kind of surprised that they didn't just bring in someone. But yeah, I guess I guess they didn't like what was out there. Yeah, I I wasn't blown away by the LeMahieu signing either. I don't know if mm-hmm. anyone was. He is the one other name I was searching for is the player who has not been on the IL <laughs> this year, although he did have a groin strain and, and miss a few days because everyone's had something at some point. And I was taken aback when someone told me after that signing, like in February, and I think I may have mentioned this on the show, but someone who works in a front office said that their team's projection system for whatever reason, I didn't get any details, had LeMahieu as a slightly better player than Bryce Harper, which uh, sounded completely (laughs) crazy at the time, but has turned out to be true at least this season. I wonder whether there is something we missed about LeMahieu. Like, did we underrate him because he was playing in Coors Field and maybe he is not the type of player who is actually helped as much by Coors Field? I mean, he is a, a pretty good contact guy and you put the ball in play. Obviously, it's it's helpful to be in Coors with that big outfield and everything, but he's hitting as well now as he ever did there. Better if you do the park adjustments. Yeah, I think... I think what's lost is that DJ was injured, I think, a couple times last year. Mm. I think it's been really interesting with this team made up of former Rockies to <laughs> to learn so much about the Rockies this year. But I think I think something that's really overlooked in playing in Colorado is that you kind of have to learn to be two different hitters mm-hmm. and or I guess in two different pitchers. So I wouldn't be surprised if actually DJ being able to play all of his games at sea level has kind of helped him to be a little bit more uh, consistent, but no, I thought that I thought that DJ was just kind of one of those guys who was left there on the market, and Brian Cashman was like, "Sure, why not?" But mm-hmm. you know, they started talking about acquiring him basically right after the World Series. So I think that's something that most fans were like, "Where did this signing come from?" But Jim Hendry, who is now a Yankees special advisor, drafted DJ LeMahieu with the Cubs always been a huge DJ fan and so he was he was a huge advocate for him and then yeah those those negotiations played out over over a couple months so there there was actually an, an intent and a and a strong desire I would say <laughs> which uh I just think it's it's funny that I think the general consensus was you know Cashman's just accumulating depth but it was it was much more uh, specifically intentioned than I think most of us predicted. So looking ahead to the the next little bit, the the Yankees have obviously benefited from the Red Sox collapse, um, and they also are lucky in that the next stretch of games that they have isn't 
super terrible. So by our um, right, our rest of season sort of strength of schedule behind just the Twins, Astros, and Rays, they have the fourth easiest schedule. They're obviously going to have to roll with this group because we don't have another August deadline. But they aren't, I would imagine, super concerned about the next month and a half of games, but are looking ahead to the postseason and will get some of their players who are on the injured list back in time for the playoff run. So you don't have to make specific predictions, although you could if you wanted to. Um, But I'm curious who among this group that has emerged and has helped them so much as they've battled through these injuries, do you anticipate um, continuing to be part of this team as they move into October versus who do you think is going to end up uh, sort of sitting on the sidelines when they get some of their other core pieces back? Hmm. I think Mike Talkman has kind of earned a spot. They definitely have an outfield crunch. So, you know, in, in September, obviously that won't be an issue, but I think he's definitely kind of, kind of won a role. Obviously, Gio Urshela is, I can't believe that they went from having Miguel Andujar almost win rookie of the year, go down for the whole season, and then Gio Urshela comes up and actually plays <laughs> better than maybe did I, I I don't I don't get it I don't get it but um, for, for Gio I think my interest is in is in the long term you know they've they've now got two third basemen who can really hit but I think you know Talkman's really the interesting one in that he has shown so much defensive versatility he's really kind of taken off at the plate and he's just like a really goofy guy like, I think they really love his, like, passion and just, like, hardcore, like, grinder emotion of it. I guess the big thing that I'm looking at until the end of September is whether or not they kind of, I don't want to say take it easy, but the, the thing that they should be competing for now is best record through the regular season, home field advantage, but also with all the aches and pains and everything that's going on. I'm, I'm interested to see how they kind of use their roster when we get to September in general. I'm just so fascinated by where they're finding these guys or how they're finding these guys, or is it just that they're finding them or are they creating them in <laughs> some way? I mean, should we be talking about the Yankees as the Astros of building hitters? I mean, the way that we talk about the Astros improving pitchers, it, it seems like the Yankees have that ability with some of these guys who just kind of come out of nowhere. Is it that they're better at evaluating skills that are already there? I mean, when they go and pick up Luke Voigt for nothing, when they get Talkman for nothing, Urshela for nothing, were those guys good or did they do something to unlock whatever latent ability was there or you know you could look at Aaron Hicks for instance who seemed Mm -hmm. like he was going to be sort of a failed prospect and then they turned him into an excellent player or or he turned into one with them and then there are just some totally mind-blowing ones like Cameron Mabin (laughs) who was with Cleveland who needed outfield help as desperately as anyone and they let Cameron Mabin go and he's got a 155 WRC plus with the Yankees (laughs) in 175 plate appearances. Cameron Mabin's never hit like this before so is this just total fluke like they are somehow getting the best season of every single one of these guys who we've never heard from before and we'll never hear from again? Or do you think that they are adept at getting the most out of players that other organizations haven't been able to? I guess to go down the list, 
I know that they really liked how hard Luke Voigt could hit the ball. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think they necessarily changed a whole lot with him, but they did some new, you know, routines and things to, to help him kind of stay in his swing a little bit. But I think for Luke, just the, just the consistency has really helped. I think it's the same thing for, for Mike Talkman. I think, you know, just not really getting that experience. And he said, he said something recently to the effect of like, you know, when he would be up with the Rockies, he knew that this one pinch hit appearance was probably going to be his at bat for the week or whatever. And so I think in getting regular reps, he's really just been able to settle down a lot. He definitely was too anxious about proving himself in Colorado. And I think getting out of that mindset has really helped him. I think Gio Rochelle has made some pretty big adjustments to his swing, but Cameron Maben actually began kind of a swing overhaul before he got to the Yankees. Mm. And so when he was bouncing around with the Indians and Giants, I don't think the, I don't think he had fully settled into those changes. I think he has, I think he was still getting adjusted to them. And I think he's really unlocked that now. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like a, like an old dog learns new trick thing. Yeah. He's, he's, he's really been receptive to that. And it's been, it's been, it's been very funny because he's just so, Cam is, so funny and so to see him hit this well is just it's it's another one of those things obviously the yankees themselves seem to have embraced the sort of underdog you know vibe which is unusual for them i'm curious because you obviously also interact with a lot of yankees fans especially on twitter how is the fan base taken taken to this team and are they nervous excited are we going to be dealing with yankees fans who find themselves to be underdogs even though their team might end up with the best record in the american league come the end of the season i don't know if they are going to think of themselves as underdogs but i would say they have definitely embraced you know guys like guys like Gio and Mike Talkman and Cam Maben and it's been it's been super interesting because I think the fan base has been really really frustrated with the injuries that they've had I think every time a new one comes up it's kind of like a throw your hands up in horror type of thing but then it keeps panning out <laughs> I would I would say you know having having not covered the 1990s juggernaut teams i would i would say that it's probably pretty easy to be really emotionally invested in this type of squad i would say that the fans are as out of their minds and as passionate as you as you could imagine as they're as they're seeing all of these like you know crazy bottom of the lineup productions and you know domingo herman taking off and things like that i think it's i think it's really given them a lot to be excited about so it's been it's been pretty fun i think it's so weird it's like of course you want glaber torres to be healthy and then there's a, a scare about his health but you almost figure that if he were to be unavailable well you you just have tyra estrada come in and probably just hit great anyway just because that's what's happening this whole season tyra estrada has a, a 120 ops plus in 54 plate appearances but it's like almost every one of these guys and mike petriello wrote about it at mlb.com about how the yankees have this historically low percentage of plate appearances given to bad hitters and that wouldn't have been surprising at the start of the season when you looked at their projected lineup but if you knew that most of that lineup was going to miss this much of the year and the guys who've actually replaced them 
And in some cases, the replacements have themselves gotten hurt, like Edwin Encarnacion, for instance. You never would have expected lineup depth to be the strength of this team, and and yet it has been. So I don't know if it is player evaluation and recognizing guys who are just kind of buried in AAA for whatever reason or development, some combination of the two. And and it's funny that you mentioned that like Voigt just needed to go somewhere where he'd have a longer leash and he'd get some rope and he'd be able to actually play for a while because the Yankees have never been that team that would like be the one to give the rookies time to, you know, sink or swim or prove themselves. It was always the Yankees were the place where like you had to be good right away or you were sent down or shipped out or something. So I guess that is a a reflection of just the desperate times that they've been in at times this season, but maybe also that their management has improved and they're patient with these players. And so I was going to ask how much credit Aaron Boone deserves for this because, you know, Savage's rant aside, like obviously he has steered this team to the best winning percentage in baseball right now, despite losing most of the team most of the time. And you'd think that would make him a a favorite for Manager of the Year award because that's how we uh, award that typically. It's just kind of, you know, who had the toughest time or who surprised us the most. And so he hasn't recruited these players he hasn't made these trades or signings and at times it's not like he's had a a lot of choice when it comes to who he's going to play on any given day but I guess just the fact that he is open to trusting some of these guys whereas other managers would be like get me some generic veteran then again (laughs) I I guess Cameron Mabin is the generic veteran and (laughs) he hits like an MVP so just can't go wrong no matter what you do yeah I think I think first and foremost, a lot of credit goes to the guys in the clubhouse. It, you know, it definitely comes down from the top from CC Sabathia and continues through with a lot of the more established big name guys. They really just want these guys to come up and be comfortable. You know, Cam Maben, CC, Aaron Judge, well, not Aaron Judge because he's young, but, you know, Cam and CC remember how uncomfortable it was to come up. And so I think. One, a lot of credit goes to the players themselves for making what seems like a really welcoming environment and saying, hey, Mike Talkman, hey, Mike Ford, come up and be yourself. But no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of nuts that a team with Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Luis Severino, Edwin Encarnacion, we are talking about Aaron Boone being a manager of the year candidate. Like anyone can drive that <laughs> team to to a hundred wins or whatever, but that's yeah. not the team he has. And I think, you know, I think he's just really, it's really impressive to me that despite all the injuries and despite a lot of circumstances that could ultimately turn it into kind of a doom and gloom environment where guys are just dropping like flies, he's somehow been able to keep the room to a point where they see it as, as a real rallying thing. And I think the the way he's probably framed it and the support he's probably given to, you know, a lot of the more established guys, but also the younger guys, I'm sure that is that has really helped. And I think, you know, I think a lot of credit really also needs to go to to the coaching staff, particularly the hitting coaches, Marcus and, and PJ. We don't we don't know everything they do behind the scenes, but as much as it's easy to say, like, you know, Luke Voigt and Mike Talkman finally get playing time, it, it, it it's not just that. But no, I mean, I, I think a lot of managers probably would have lost the room at some point, and they are 
definitely more united than you have guys like Brett Gardner, Zach Britton, Cameron Maben saying, you know, this is the most cohesive, happy team I've been on, despite, you know, looking around and seeing basically a graveyard on the IL. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned Gardner briefly there, and I wanted to mention him too, because he is someone who I think a lot of people were surprised that the Yankees even brought back this Mm -hmm. year, since it it seemed like they had a logjam in the outfield. And that hasn't turned out to be the case because Stanton's barely played. And Gardner's having his best offensive season at age 35 since like, I don't know, 2014 or so. And he has remained productive. And I just got curious because he's up over 40 career wins above replacement right now. And if you go back to his rookie year, 2008, when he only played 42 games, but looking at just all players since that year, he ranks 17th in baseball among position players in baseball reference war, like between, you know, Hall of Famers and like perennial all-stars and and guys you think of as the best players in baseball. And Brett Gardner would never really be on that list. He's certainly (laughs) not the first person who comes to mind, but he's just like been very consistent and solid defensively and on the bases, even at somewhat advanced ages and like gets on base. He's just, he's a good player, very underrated, even on a team where you wouldn't think there would be many underrated players. Yeah, I think that's the really nice thing is that Guardy is still Guardy. You know, it's the the playing all the time thing, I think, is something that in, in a perfect world, he wouldn't have had to play all these damn games. But <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, he's he's really just been able to keep at it this year. Obviously, he's had some more power, but I think everything, I think a lot of the small things that Brett does get really underrated, but he's just just kind of funny you know he's like kind of kind of grumpy southern southern brett uh just just still doing his thing well i don't know how any subsequent season could give you as many storylines as this one (laughs) has it's probably difficult to cover just in terms of the sheer amount of news and people you have to get to know but on the other hand, there's just always something to write about, I guess, because there's just always some improbable story and some other person who's doing something that you wouldn't expect. Kyle Higashioka has a, a 114 OPS plus. Sure, why not? Uh, just everyone. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Being surprised by people's stats is my thing, Ben. <laughs> yeah. And yet Clint Frazier can't even crack this roster. Poor Clint Frazier. Are we going to see more Clint Frazier? Does he have a future with the Yankees? I think he does. They need a left fielder, assuming they let Guardy walk. And with a lot of those younger guys uh, hitting arbitration, like Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez, payroll is actually going to jump next season. So I think it's kind of undervalued how much having a cost-controlled guy like Clint there is going to help. I don't really know. You know, it's like Clint Clint made some mistakes and he needed to work on his defense. I don't necessarily think his stay in AAA is punitive. I understand it's probably very difficult for him, but it is such a it is such a lightning rod story where there are some people who think the Yankees are out of their minds for keeping him in AAA right now, and then there's some people who are, you know, kind of all all aboard the talkman sockman train. And it's I don't know. I understand they don't really need him right now, 
because they have enough outfielders at the moment. But I guess like everyone else, I'm interested. I'm very interested to see where this goes. I'm curious, you know, you you mentioned the important role he's having in the clubhouse with all of these young guys. I would imagine that this being CeCe's last season, this probably isn't quite how he wanted things to go with injuries. Mm-hmm. How how has this last year kind of been for him? Is he taking it in stride? Does I mean, he'll be back at some point here, so it's not like he's pitched his last game for the Yankees, but I'm curious how having the injuries in his final year has has sort of hit him and is it just that he's leaning into embracing the young guys or where where's his head at right now? You know, I think, I don't think CC expected to need as much time off as he has, but, you know, he said the other day that like the pain in his knee is normally at an eight and then oh, it's wow. just, yeah, it's just, he, he goes on the IL or, you know, takes a break over the London stretch or all-star break when it's at a 10. But, you know, something CC said in his retirement, press conference in Tampa and he was like, look, I just wanted to be able to go out there and give it my all and not worry about the health of my knee and I will just replace my knee as soon as as soon as the season is over. But I think CeCe kind of knew that he was just going to have to push through a lot. I'm sure he's bummed not to be pitching more consistently, but you know, he he knows the shape of his knee. He knows where things are at and I would assume he had a pretty good sense that he was going to get a lot of time off this year. It's just the the knee issue sounds so bad. Like hearing him describe it as like a constant eight, I was like, oh my God, man, how are you doing this? How are you doing this? How are you going out and pitching all of your weight on a knee that feels like an eight out of 10 on a good day? Professional athletes, they're nothing like us. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely nothing. So the last thing I wanted to ask, Meg already asked which of these current guys might hang around after the injured guys return. So I want to know about the injured guys returning and and some of the more prominent ones who are still on the IL, whether it's Severino, Vitanzas, Encarnacion, Stanton. Which of these guys is, is the most likely, least likely to come back and really contribute and, and be a prominent part of the playoff roster? Okay, so least likely is probably Jacoby Ellsbury. Um, (laughs) I would say, let's see, Gary Sanchez is supposed to be back this weekend. Giancarlo Stanton has started baseball activities again. So Uh, Baseball activities. Oh, yeah, hitting off a tee. (laughs) Luis Severino, should everything go well? I'm, I'm really interested to see how they use him. I'm interested particularly because... Domingo Herman has is pretty much at the point where he's pitched more this season than any other in his career. I would say, you know, getting getting Sevy and potentially Dellen back is obviously that's that's the kind of group that you think will make the most immediate impact since since the team is hitting well right now. But you know, I just I just feel bad. It's been it's been a lost season for Stanton, and I think it's going to sour him in the eyes of a lot of the fan base in a way that. I don't necessarily know is fair because he can't really help that he strained his PCL. But yeah, I think I think everyone's looking forward to the to the Sevy Dellen weapons as being their, you know, as they said, their their deadline type additions. <laughs> well, you don't have to change your prediction. 
But I'm curious if you would like to revise either up or down your preseason prediction for final wins. This is incredibly rude of me. We never <laughs> ask people to do this. So you can just tell me to get lost also. If that is a third option available to you. No, I'm sticking with 105. Yeah. I like it. I think I, you should. <laughs> I like it. It's, I, it's much more, it sounds much more reasonable to me than, than it did the first time. Now it, it sounds about right. I know. I have been so anxious insecure about making that prediction and then every time they just keep winning i'm like wait is this team of like random quad a guys going to bail me out for my effectively wild prediction (laughs) (sighs) fantastic Uh, All right. Well, you can follow the latest twists and turns in the Yankees' improbable season at The Athletic, reading Lindsay and following her on Twitter at Lindsay Adler. Thank you very much for coming on and attempting to explain the inexplicable. Thank you, guys. And Meg, I will see you at Saber Seminar. Sounds good. Have fun, guys. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signing up to pledge some small monthly amount, help keep the podcast going, and get yourself some perks. The following five listeners have already done so. Eric Richardson, Brian Mosher, Kyle Rowan, Chad Goldberg, and Gavin Rodkey. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance this week. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. If you like it, please say so. Leave us a positive review on Amazon Goodreads. It does help us out. If you see us at Saber Seminar, please say hello. Meg and I will be doing a live episode on Saturday. You will hear it even if you're not at Saber Seminar a couple days after that. So please have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you early next week. When I least expected, kindly fate directed you to make each dream of mine come true and if it's clear or raining there is no explaining things just happen and so did you you came to me from out of nowhere 